Hey, everybody. Welcome back. This is episode 20 of Jointly Venturing, the only podcast dedicated to the issue of world citizenship, what it means, where we're going on this journey together, and how we'll actually get there. So today, a whole range of things are happening in the world that, again, uh, point very clearly to the simple, basic fact that planet Earth as a whole is one single entity. So whether it's the bushfire smoke from Australia that's now settling all over Latin America and much of the rest of the world, or the coronavirus in China and beyond, which is affecting not only the health of tens of thousands of people, but also the global economy um, in so many places across the world. Those two things alone, combined with so many other political and other developments, again, point us to the understanding that, really, we have one common planet that we all share. And it requires us to really contemplate whether the way we've decided as humans to organize ourselves is really an, or the best pathway to achieve what human beings are ultimately capable of. So today we're very, very fortunate to have with us Peter Georgievsky from the Global Dialogue Foundation. Um, and we're going to talk today about the whole question of global civilization, the question of an alliance of civilizations, an alliance of religions, and generally the work that he and his colleagues are doing with the Global Dialogue Foundation. So welcome to Jointly Venturing, Peter. Thank you, Scott. Um, thanks for inviting me to be with you today. It's great uh, to have you. Really look forward to our discussion. So just tell us a bit about the founding of Global Dialogue Foundation, what it does, where, where it's going, and, and what you see as its main aims and objectives. So the foundation started um, a bit over 10 years ago, and it follows and continues the founders' work, which has been underway with the Global Dialogue Initiative for well over 25 years the Global Dialogue Foundation, uh, its primary aim really is to serve as a nucleus for the creation of a united civilizations. So uh, over the last 10 years, we have delivered um, various uh, fora across the world, participated in various UN Alliance of Civilizations discussions, um, uh, DPI meetings, etc., and predominantly, we work really close with the UN Alliance of Civilizations in bridging the divide between cultures. Tell us a little bit about the Alliance of Civilizations for listeners that don't know about it. So the Alliance of Civilizations is, a, um, is part of the United Nations, um, not as a major organ, but as a significant player. And its role is to counter the forces of extremism and to bring together nations and civil society and academics and you know, various sectors to um, bridge the divide between um, originally as the Muslim and the Christian worlds. And um, it has been um, putting on forums, major forums in various countries around the world since I think it was 2009 or earlier, actually 2007 perhaps. Um, so, that's at the governmental level primarily, but also has engaged civil society. Um, so the Global Dialogue Foundation, on the other hand, is primarily focused on the uh, civil society, so ordinary citizens uh, working with governments wherever possible to help bridge that divide in communities. So 
the um, the very first event of the GD of the Global Dialogue Foundation was at the uh, Melbourne Town Hall with the City of Melbourne and a number of uh, universities, where we really brought together twenty um, uh, odd uh, non governmental organisations, and our efforts were about um, helping them scale up their efforts that would contribute to building. Uh, more understanding, promoting dialogue between people of different cultures in their spheres of influence. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was a really successful event, and it was done uh, under the auspices of the Alliance of Civilizations. And then following the success of that, uh, the Alliance um, picked up that this was a really in, um, leading initiative in communities that would bring civil society together. So the real grassroots realities and... Um, you know the goal of the uh, academic academicians and the uh, the government representatives, um, members of parliament who participated, was really to help understand, um, you know, what the what the uh, what's happening at at the top level, if you like, of governmental level or, or uh, in universities, uh, the research that's available to support these initiatives on the ground. So um, that went off really well. New partnerships were, were formed um, by by um, across different organisations, and then we. Um, took the initiative to India and delivered a similar forum in Kerala. So that was in 2011. And um, again, that really focused on, um, you know, what more can be done in communities to bridge the divide between the different cultures. So that started off with an essay contest that brought, I think it was about 70 or 80 entrants where students wrote in and wrote an essay and we, we, we ran a competition and they wrote in uh, with their initiatives on or their ideas for what kinds of initiatives could promote um, the building of, of unity in diversity and uh, how they could, um, you know, in their own areas or in their own schools, et cetera, um, help move that, um, move the needle forward. So, yeah, right. Excellent. And then following that, we, um, we, we uh, you know, a greater um, portion of the Australian community got involved in the Alliance of Civilizations work. And then the following that year, later that year, there was a follow-up event in Australia with the Alliance of Civilizations. Uh, we held a, um, a, a big meeting in the Northgate Town Hall in Victoria with President Sampaio, who uh, addressed community, leaders of community, leaders of local government, on you know what's happening around the world at the UN Alliance of Civilizations and bringing about an engagement with civil society that was more meaningful. So Global Dialogue Foundation has played that role where it would engage with organizations on the ground in various countries around the world and follow on with what we started with in 2010 and 11 and then just really continue that forward. So, I mean, I could speak to all of the events. We probably don't have all the time to do that but um so yeah well how let, let's look at it even more broadly so you've done all these great events and um you know put the ideas out there um why don't you explain a bit more about what you're thinking is along the lines of the alliance of uh or well we have the united nations general assembly and the security council all the mechanisms that, which are in place now at the un level which are all derived ultimately from the un charter from 1945 and you were speaking earlier about the idea of having two additional bodies uh, formed. And so this is, you know, this is a really important aspect of this podcast generally is, you know, we can, we can all say that we're world citizens. We can all say that obviously the things that we share are infinitely greater in number 
uh, and depth and importance than the things that divide us. Um, but what does it actually mean in concrete terms if we were to move towards a, a real legal status of world citizenship, whereby you, when you were born, you would actually get a world citizenship status similar to your national status that you get now in every single country on earth. Um, so that, that's one step in the process. Now, we also have to envisage what that would look like in political terms if we were all the same nationality globally instead of 195 different ones or maybe 2,000 different ones if we look at all the unrecognized nations and peoples uh, across the world, particularly indigenous peoples. Um, what would it actually look like in practice? You know, How could my world citizenship status be equal to someone in Botswana's world citizenship status? And what could we do jointly together as common nationalities, i.e. world citizens, and everyone else too. So if we believe that the General Assembly, the Security Council, and the other mechanisms of the UN, which are in place now and have been in place for 75 years, um, cover basically the political elements of the world as it is today, that may change dramatically if we move towards a, a real world citizenship status down the road, um, but what do you have in mind in terms of the role of civil society at the global level and the role of religions at the global level? Um, I think what you've what you've just put forward is a is perhaps a very complex um, area to pull apart. But also, I'm going to try and speak to um, to respond to your question about civil society and the two additional um, main structures, um, and try and keep it really simple. To understand, um, however, it does require that we kind of step outside of what we may know as our reality today and consider what some of the possibilities might be. Uh, currently, you know, the United Nations is stretched, if we can call it stretched, um, on so many levels, and um, you know, Global Dialogue Foundation as a nucleus for a for United Civilizations is really about establishing a strong pillar that brings citizens together. So that would include, you know, ordinary people like you and I, um, NGOs, business, and people across, you know, let's call the citizens sector, uh, together in a in a um, in a coordinated manner that would encompass all of the different cultures and all of the different ethnicities around the world and, um, you know, move forward together as unity in diversity. So almost like a people's assembly in effect, it's like a parallel body to, to a state-based assembly, which is the general assembly, and then parallel to that you'd have ultimately a assembly of civilizations or a people's assembly exactly. that would re really represent ordinary voters across the world. Exactly. Well, exactly. Um, I mean... You know, from from our perspective, where what you know, what's really clear is that we're uh, focusing on the citizenship, uh, citizens, ordinary citizens, and you know, without interfering in governmental um, uh, affairs, uh, we're really talking about ordinary people in communities, building unity in diversity, and moving forwards together. Um, across all of their cultures and across all of the different religions that, that live in a particular environment or a community and then working together to address the needs of the community together mm -hmm. as a, in, in a united front. And then pulling that together in a structured manner, not only in a country, but really across the world. So if we consider that the United Nations is a major pillar in our global governance system, 
then looking forward, we would establish a United Civilizations, which would be a similar type of arrangement that would be represented, um, each country would be represented. Um, and then as, a, as, a, as, a, um, as another pillar, there w- we would see the creation of a United Religions that would bring religions together, which, was, which would be the responsibility of the religious organisations, the institutions and all of the major religions in whatever shape or form that they would deem appropriate for their cause, but it would bring three major pillars, creating three major pillars for helping the world in its efforts to really streamline global governance um, measures. So a United Nations, a United Religions, and a United Civilizations. Our role, Global Dialogue Foundation's role, is really about United Civilizations, Mm -hmm. while we don't interfere in the other two pillars. So um, to try and make this, uh, to try and uh, help you understand or help the listeners understand what this means in practice, um, following our 2011 event in Australia with the Alliance and the different communities and the different levels of government in Australia, we um, set a partnership up with, well, it was a working arrangement with the city of Whittlesey and the city of Whittlesea was it's like the pilot was the pilot program for us here in Australia, where we created an a, an organisation called the Whittlesea Community Leadership Network, and it mm-hmm. was an organisation that was owned, well not owned but um, you know really led by the community. It was registered with the Consumer Affairs of Victoria. It uh, put together the group put together a board of an executive committee, and I think there was about six or seven in the, you know, in, in the formation stage. And then this executive committee set forward a plan to bring together members from the community, from the Whittlesea community, on an ongoing basis and mm-hmm. worked with the local council to create the space for the meetings to happen, uh, to organise some funding, to organise some in-kind support so that members of the community who came forward as leaders of the different cultural groups or the different ethnic groups could meet on an ongoing basis, talk about the issues that are concerning in the community, understand what some of the problems are that we're each facing, and then work together to come up with with some solutions. So that started in 2000 and it could have been 2012 and um, that organisation continues today mm-hmm. as one of the leading associations in the city of Whittlesea. So at the time, uh, I was the, um, the founding vice chair of that association, and we, GDF, would really help to give it direction and shape on how this group could um, move forward together. But it was really a culmination of the different intent- of all of the intentions of the community to strengthen the community's capacity to coexist in the city of Whittlesea. So the city of Whittlesea had its own goals and objectives it wanted to achieve. The other groups had their all each had their own goals and objectives. And our role was to help this to happen across the different cultures. So we brought in the dimension of um, cultural understanding, intercultural understanding, where you know, and and the way this would work would be that you know every month the broader community would meet. So every anyone was invited. Anyone in the community was invited to attend. And then once a month, the executive committee would meet to really tease out what's going on, where it's going, you know, what it needs to do to take it forward. So over some time, what had happened was each of the representatives of the executive committee would assume responsibility for a sector of the society. So one of them would be health, the other one would be uh, culture, the other one would be environment, and so on. 
you know, the other one would be women sector. And then each of these representatives would then work with other members of the community or invite members of the community to work together on firstly to identify um, some of the issues that needed to be addressed and then secondly to really respond to those issues and start delivering programs to the community that would help to move that forward. So all of this is on the basis that the people in the community can become friends, right? So if we really go right to, to, to the word go, we're talking about people meeting and becoming friends. And once they've become friends across the different cultures, the walls begin to come down and people can start to work together. So what happened was the first project that really took shape after this was the Women's Leading Health and Safety Program. Um, so the sector head from the executive committee went out to the community and invited participants who would form a subgroup or a subcommittee for the health sector, women's health sector. Uh, uh, you know, I think it was seven or eight uh, women who joined that committee. I can't remember the exact number, but that group then went out and surveyed the community to understand what would be helpful. What could this group do to help the community? And what they determined was that the group would be, uh, or the community would find helpful, an eight-week program that would bring in different professionals across the health sector to speak to and deliver trainings to the broader community. Right. So the first pro the first program I think brought uh, women together from thirty three different cultural groups, and they all sat together across eight weeks, eight programs, and one could have been one one session was about um, health in the family, healthy eating. Another session was on family violence, etc. So this went on for eight weeks, and you know it was extremely successful, and then it went on to its phase two, and off it went. So herein is a group of 33 different cultures coming together, working together to address the needs of the community, which is a remarkable, was a remarkable program. Right. Uh, it gained support from various business. It gained support from some funding from UNESCO at the time. I think the state government contributed some money towards it. So it was really outstanding. Um, at the time, and while I was actively involved in, in the group, the, um, the state government funded somewhere to the tune of about $90,000, $86,000 to the program to hire a, uh, a part-time, um, you know, customer service, if you like, or, or a part-time operator who would help really drive things forward. So that's an example, and this community group continues. So that's an example of what unity and diversity means in community and how impactful it can be. So I guess ultimately, <clears throat> excuse me, ultimately the, the objective would be to have these... Um, mechanisms in place at all municipal levels across all countries and really promote intercultural, interreligious, interethnic, interclass, um, inter-everything um, discussion and uh, debate and, you know, try to reach the point where, as you put it, you know, people actually become friends with one another because it's actually not that hard. Um, on the flip side, though, you know, if we take a more uh, devil's advocate approach to this question, it all sounds very positive and very forward-looking and, and um, you know, how can you argue with it? Um, but we're speaking about that in, that issue in February 2020 in a world that's increasingly fractured, increasingly divided, um, uh, in a world where ethnic tensions are on the boil in countless and uh, unfortunately growing number of countries. 
um, where intractable ethnic religious conflicts in uh, many regions of the world are, are rather than declining definitely on the increase. Um, so how do we, you know, how do we grapple with this emerging level of mistrust, um, fear, paranoia, uh, emphasis on laying all the blame on the other, um, in a world that's increasingly also dominated by authoritarian leaders that are not accountable to their populations who essentially manipulate um, their populations to follow them um, by towing an, an extremely hard line, uh, which tends to be my side is correct, your side is wrong. And in a, in a world that's fully interconnected and fully interrelated and mutually independent, interdependent on, on, uh, our, on everyone for our own collective livelihood, you know, that's an ultimate recipe for, for disaster. So how do we go from, you know, positive examples like you were outlining of people from, you know, incredibly broad cross-section of cultural groups getting together and seeing eye to eye on most issues and then trying to iron out what little differences there were. Um, how do we, you know, really catapult that up to the global level and, and you know, facilitate us getting past this current turbulent time to one where there's actually a re-embrace of internationalist ideals, um, you know, all of the ideals that came out of internationalist thinking, of world-centric consciousness, of, of unified thinking along the lines of we are one human family, as opposed to my country's better than yours and you better watch out and you better not threaten me or else I'll take you down. You know, I mean, that, that attitude, you know, luckily hasn't gotten too out of hand, um, but it could very quickly get fundamentally out of hand in a way that we don't even want to conceptualize. Um, so how do we make that shift? How do we deal with the fact that um, politicians gain by focusing on the other now rather than focusing on unity and similarity and the simple fact that, you know, the way things are now, the status quo is clearly unacceptable um, and putting the blame on another when the blame actually has to probably be apportioned more in other directions um, is a really, you know, not a very admirable situation. So what do you have to say about that? Look, I think that, um, uh, I mean, I agree with everything you said there. It's extremely challenging. And, and when we look at, when we take an outside look at what's going on on this planet, if we were to stand outside to have a look, it, it's, it's wild. Mm -hmm. um, and from, I, I, think, I think responsibility is a big thing. I think we've got to take responsibility for where we are. We all need to take responsibility for where we are. And, um, you know, who was right and who was wrong? Well, you know, what's happened has happened and we are where we are. And looking forward and moving forward would be how I'd like to think about, how, you know, where we're at. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think there's going to continue to be these conflicts that we see around the world for territory and for, 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 for gain, etc. And I think they'll continue. But I'm hoping that we can see them begin to wind down and become more productive. And, you know, those efforts can become more productive towards, um, you know, bringing the world to a better place for our next generations. You know, we all have, uh, you know, I have young kids and I, I know you have a, a teenage uh, daughter and, you know, 
where I consider what will this world be like in 20 years if we can ramp up when my kids are my age, it, when, you know, if we could ramp up the idea of unity and diversity, the idea of celebrating every single culture that exists on the planet, the idea of uh, bringing together a citizen structure that would complement the United Nations or the, the governments around the world. And from that perspective, I look back and I, and I, I try to look from further back and, and, and believe that it's actually really doable. And I really believe we're closer to being able to do it today than ever before, at least from what I know of in my time. So, you know, I'm going to try and keep it as simple as I can again, and I'll try, try and break down how, you know, what we've been doing to help move the needle forward slowly but surely. And I think, it, I think it's about um, starting these little pockets of dialogue and talking about creating more um, or promoting more dialogue and understanding between people of different cultures and working together for the common good around the world. And, you know, I spoke about Australia and India's, you know, efforts of the GDF and, you know, going on to, say, Africa. A few years ago, we were contacted by a, uh, an NGO in Kenya who said, look, we've read everything on your website. We've seen every video and I know what that would take because there's a lot of content. Mm -hmm. um, and they said, we, would, we want to work with you. What we're finding is schools are closing because of conflict, um, religious conflict, and, you know, we have a real problem here that we need to address. So we would ideally like to work with you. So in uh, these are the types of organizations that Global Dialogue Foundation um, actively seeks. Uh, to, to join our network and to join our, our, our platform. So we began to work with this organization in putting together a plan for what could be done to build unity and diversity in Kenya. So it started with talking to the local commissioners. It started by uh, coming together and presenting this idea that they would bring communities together to focus on unity and diversity across tribes, across cultures, across their different groups, that they would come together actively on an ongoing basis. And uh, what happened was when they first reported back, they said, look, people are looking at us almost um, strangely, like, um, you know, we, we never considered this concept before. Um, however, it's actually really doable. And people are coming together in communities and we'd receive photographs of their meetings and, you know, the smiles and, the f and you could just feel how, how positive their interactions have been. So they came back and they told us that the local, that the governmental office had agreed to give them the space they needed for their meetings and they agreed to give them the support. They came back and showed us a letter of support. So, you know, it, it encouraged us to continue to mentor and to work with, with this organisation. So to going two years forward, um, following numerous meetings, numerous efforts, you know, they've had radio interviews, they've had, they've had a TV personality join the group, um, and going two years forward, they've reported that uh, the school that they were referring to before we first spoke had reopened. They called out to run unity and diversity camps that would bring students together during their holiday period. Um, to talk about culture, to talk about ethics, to talk about, you know, to really 
um, discuss and explore what it takes to become a responsible citizen. Um, and, um, you know, they're now, they've, they've now completed their second camp. There was a spring camp and a summer camp. And, you know, they brought together um, 30, 40, 50 uh, teenage children for, uh, for, for, a, for this camp. And the, the outpour of support that was offered by the teachers to volunteer to, f- to help facilitate these programs was, was overwhelming. You know, we had a call, I had a call from her to tell me that um, her name's Paris. I had a call from Paris to say we uh, had received the responses to our request for volunteer teachers for the camp. And we have received 500 applications. Mm. So it goes to show how how interest how much interest there is, and you know the in where they in their environment, this type of program is workable. It's doable. It's not you know it's not something that would be um, impossible to do. So following that, you know while we stay on Africa in Cameroon, the representative who um, who. Uh, you know, who represents the Cameroon basically and her colleagues um, on our monthly uh, Unity and Diversity Africa Continental um, group calls, they have put together a program called Unity and Diversity Clubs. So they've started to work with one bilingual school where they've identified that if they could bring the ideals of unity and diversity to this school, they could help break down some of the barriers that exist between the two groups. So we know it's a volatile situation in that country. Um, However, this school, um, with the support of the Ministry of Culture, has taken this program on and um, they just launched it last weekend. The program was just launched last weekend and they're looking to partner with a school overseas. So we're putting them together with a school perhaps in India so that they could share their... um, their successes, their their challenges, and they could work together and create that kind of connection. So these are really small initiatives that are happening at grassroots realities. And I can talk to a number of initiatives we've done around the world, and it's not only in Kenya or um, you know with uh, or, or Cameroon and a budding group in Nigeria, or you know uh, programs that we've delivered, unity and diversity programs in Serbia for the Balkans multiple programs over the years. So, you know, slowly but surely what's happening is the group of people who are concerned with uh, the issues we're discussing today are coming forward and telling us that their NGO is involved in this work and they could add a dimension of culture or cultural understanding or intercultural understanding to help their work move forward. Um, So it's a slow process. Uh, It is really slow. Stone but it, but it's also really positive what you're saying. And, and I mean, it speaks to the simple fact that there are literally, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of initiatives going on all around the world now, which are basically pushing in the very same direction, um, saying essentially the same thing. We have to get along. You know, my group isn't better than yours. Your group isn't better than mine. Let's just see where we what we can share. And then let's celebrate the differences and call it culture and move forward and realize that, you know, all of us are in it together, whether we like it or not. Having a mono-ethnic society is not a, not possible anymore. Um, having a dominant racial group is not possible anymore. Stopping migration is not possible anymore. None of it's possible. So we are, we're going to have a globalized planet, whether we like it or not. We're going to have an intermingling of cultures and religions and different perspectives, whether we like it or not. And we need to look at the examples around the world of where 
this actually works and and does not undermine society, strengthens society, does not undermine the economy, strengthens the economy. I mean, you name it. There, there's a whole, you know, what gets a lot of press attention is the fact that a number of countries are trying to restrict immigration, for instance. What doesn't get press attention is the incredible success that immigration brings to countries across the world when they have an open door policy. I mean, Canada would have been far down the league of wealthy nations had they not allowed millions of people to immigrate there. The very same with Australia. The immigration policy in Australia may be less prominent now than it was 10 years ago, but nonetheless, I think 190 to 210,000 people immigrate here every single year with virtually no ripples of discontent by anyone. I mean, it's broadly supported by all political parties. And even countries which are traditionally anti-immigration, like Japan, are beginning to start thinking that, oh, oh, we're losing population, we need to open some doors, we need to bring in some immigrants. So that that process, I don't think, no matter what governments do, is not going to be stopped. Um, the process of the intermingling of the global economy is not going to be stopped. Um, the, the increased globalization of our culture, generally speaking, is not going to be stopped. I mean, there's no country in the world that's going to stop eating Mexican food once they've gotten access to Mexican food or Italian food right, or Japanese food, or whatever it is, it makes society better the more choices that you have. It's like an ecological system. The more diversity you have, the stronger the system is, the more likely it is to survive. So what we really need to get past is perception and, and education and mutual understanding. And really, in the end, very often, it simply comes down to exposure. You know, So anything that, you know, I believe, even though there are climate change dimensions to this, um, obviously, but, you know, travel by people to other countries, to other cultures is an indispensable step towards embracing the unity of all of humanity. Once you have that direct personal interaction with people, it's very hard to start seeing them as completely different, completely other. And we need leaders in the current geopolitical situation that we have in the world today. We need leaders who are world-centric in orientation. We need leaders who don't see ethnicity or color, or race, or all of these things in a negative way. We need leaders that say, our societies globally are stronger if we're unified. Our societies are going to be richer and cleaner with less negative climate change impacts if we all come together and realize that the common enemy is not somebody who's Christian, or somebody who's Muslim, or somebody who's Jewish, or somebody who's you know, Taoist, or any other religion. The common enemy is climate change, for instance. You know, that's the thing we all have to tackle together. You can't, you can't have even 99% of the countries tackling it and one country not tackling it, thinking that you're going to somehow not suffer the consequences. And we need to start focusing, you know, simultaneously outward and inward at the same time, you know, to expand every single person's own mind towards an embrace of the other and at the same time look locally at what's going on around you immediately from a perspective that's totally global in orientation. And as you were alluding to earlier, you know, we're not really, uh, you know, big on aliens or anything like that. But, you know, if somebody was able to have never experienced Earth and then suddenly come down and looked at it now from an objective perspective, saw everything that was possible on that planet, and then analyzed how actually humans are going about dealing with it, all of the resources the oceans, the atmosphere, the trees, the forests, the factories, everything else, you know, I'm sure the 
our species would not get an A plus, right? I mean, we'd probably be getting a C minus or D. Uh, and in other areas, we'd be getting Fs. And, you know, whether we like it or not, right now, 300,000 people will be born today on this planet and tomorrow and the next day and the next day. Millions upon millions of people will be born this year. And that, that process shows no sign of really slowing down for quite a long time. Every single one of those people is going to want to have a washing machine, is going to want to be able to travel the world, is going to be want to want to have a refrigerator, want to have a car, want to have all these things, um, and that's increasingly unlikely. And that's that's to me one of the big worrying points that we need to you know fully grasp that if everyone in the world wanted to have a Western middle class lifestyle, we'd we'd require at least two planet Earths in order to achieve that at current levels. And we're never going to achieve that, obviously. So there's going to reach this point where now, you know, most people most of the time think the earth is more or less infinite. We have access to as many things as we want to have. Uh, we just have to dig them out of the ground and then form pieces of rock into metal, which then creates the products that we want to have. But actually there is a finite point there. And we can't do that for everybody everywhere all the time at infinitum forever. And that's the point we need to reach collectively, that we, we live on a finite planet. We're all the same species. We all have exactly the same needs and wishes. How do we manage the situation in a way that doesn't favor certain groups over others to the detriment of others? I mean, we can't accept a world where three United States-based billionaires collectively have more money than 3.6 billion people on the rest of the planet. I mean, that's simply... That should not be able to exist uh, on the planet that we have. And we need to make hard decisions and look at hard issues like that also. You know, it's one thing to talk about inter-religious dialogue and inter-ethnic dialogue and all that, which is absolutely of fundamental importance. But at the same time, we also can't forget that questions of inequality and class are as preeminent today as they have ever been, even though they're not generally on the top of the political agendas of countries where, where it needs to be. And unless we address that issue um, combined with the others, it's almost impossible to see a positive outcome in 10, 20, 30, 50 years because the most likely outcome will simply be that the billionaire class and their cronies will have their isolated little communities and everyone else will be kept out. And that's not the world we want to have either. So ultimately it, com it comes down to really people waking up in the morning and saying, I'm so glad I'm a world citizen. I'm so glad I can share this planet with everyone else. I'm so glad that everyone else shares my nationality, which is earthling, which is a global person. And I don't have to renounce anything else that I also am. You know, I don't have to renounce the fact that I'm a Serb or that I'm Slovakian, you know, or that I'm Brazilian or that anything else. And I don't have to, re I don't have to resent or, or, you know, push down the fact that I'm from a particular state or district or a particular city or a particular religion, all of that can be collectively embraced. All we're talking about here really is adding, adding on, you know, we're augmenting, we're improving, we're extending our possibilities as individual humans beyond where we are now to another level, which is reachable by all of us instantaneously, um, that simply takes cognizance of the fact that all of us share the surface of this very finite planet. And starting locally is the way we have to do it, but we can't forget that ultimately the big picture is the world as a whole. 
Well, just on the topic of climate change and people moving around and different people from different cultures living together in the same, you know, communities. Mm-hmm. This is a big deal. And I don't I think we're very complacent right now. Um, as you know, the world, the planet is very, really complacent with what the potential impacts are of a mass number of people having to move, right? I mean, we're, you know, speaking to the area that you've worked in for so many years. Um, when I think about the levels required of intercultural collaboration, and that means people from different cultures working together for the common good in the, in the communities and and I glean on the last 10 years of what has been required in terms of effort to accomplish the goals we've had to accomplish or we've been able to accomplish, I look forward and I think, wow, there's a lot to do. So I don't know that we're ready to handle mass migration as potentially is on our doorstep. Um, you know, it's the, the, this is a really... Uh, th- this is a topic that requires a lot more attention. So, yeah, and and a lot more preparation. I mean, we only we already have more people living outside their countries of birth than ever before. No question about it. But it's still a minute portion of humanity. Not more than three uh, percent, I believe, of people live outside where they were born. So, ninety-seven percent still haven't even thought of living anywhere else than where they were born. That's going to change quickly as climate change worsens and maybe the numbers will be as high as 10 percent or 15 percent and th- like you said are we ready for that and how do we get ready for that not just at the land level or the or new housing construction new settlements construction processes but how do we actually try to turn climate displacement into something positive i think is the really best way to go about looking at this issue not just throwing up our arms and saying oh no 700 million people are going to be on the move it's like how can we actually guide this process to a certain degree so that places that need population, where they have declining numbers now, such as many countries in Europe, Japan, South Korea, a range of others, which are also wealthy and need population, how can we encourage those types of places to act as like magnets in a way to, or, or sanctuary areas for climate displaced people? And there's a whole range of things that can be done, and it's much better to approach it that way, in a positive manner, and embracing it, um, rather than trying to put up walls, which just don't work. I mean, they're just ridiculous. Every wall always crumbles. So, And you can fly over every wall, and you can go around every wall, and you can go under every wall. They're just you know, ridiculous populist stopgap measures that really don't achieve anything, except for you know, looking good on the uh, evening news to your supporters. So... I think that's the way we need to try to look at these big challenges, you know, and, and use the thinking that uh, Global Dialogue Foundation and others have developed to, you know, get the local populations in these areas to embrace this idea as well. Because unless you have that, it's going to be hard to say, come on in 10,000 Bangladeshis, come on in 10,000 people from Kiribati, come on in 10,000 people from Vietnam. We want to welcome you to our area. We know you've lost your homes and we, we know you can contribute to society. That's really the weak point in the in the chain, I think, is how do you get the local populations to see this as an inherently beneficial thing? That's a um, really good question. The Whittlesea Community Leadership Network example, I'd come back to that um, because it is an, a, a really positive example of community working with local government. 
and then with the support of local government, working with the state government to, to gain support. The second or third year of its operation saw a uh, representative who works with local governments around the world, part of a global local government network, and he's a leader in the field of culture um, as an NGO in Australia. And he uh, has been following the progress of the Whittlesea Community Leadership Network as an example of community working with local government. And I quote, during his keynote speech at the AG, second or third AGM, he said, this is in my 27 years of working with local governments around the world, this is the best example I have ever come across of local community working with government. So I just want to point out, firstly, that this type of arrangement is um, feasible. Mm-hmm. It's feasible for all local governments, especially in Australia, but also in other countries where the collaboration between local government or government and the people is, you know, really workable. Where can people read more about this if they would like to? Is there a website they can go to? Yeah. Yeah. Where would Uh, they go? They can read on the gdfunityindiversity.org website Mm -hmm. and also globaldialoguefoundation.org. Okay, excellent. So the member of the, the, uh, the, uh, member of parliament for the city, um, who was Andrew Giles, MP, he um, he became the patron of the association in its second or third year. And in my last meeting with him, what he said to me was, um, I cannot tell you how positive the contribution is of the CLN to the community in Whittlesea in words. It is outstanding. And it wasn't just his words in our meeting because I did read one of his speeches in the Australian Parliament where he spoke about the work of the community leadership in Whittlesey and he pointed to this being a leading example for organising Australian communities going forward Mm -hmm. in his speech. So this is a really simple example that can be scaled up in a big way and it really ought to be, um, you know, I mean, we've... We're working on doing that around the world in various, you know, in other countries. And, uh, you know, it's been totally been done on, um, you know, as as a volunteer effort. So all of these efforts have been voluntary by pretty much all of the participants. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to greeting newcomers and welcoming people from different cultures, I just want to point out, I mean, I was, I'm Australian born. My parents came in from overseas in the 70s. They couldn't speak any English. So they had their experience as an immigrant who found it, you know, they found it tough. Mm-hmm. Fortunately, they were able to move in an area where there were others from, from their home country mm-hmm. and they could get along and build a life and have a family and so on. So I grew up in an environment where we would experience the arrival of new faces over that period of time. And, you know, let's call it the multiculturalization of a community. Mm -hmm. You know, I remember it when I was in my young teens, you know, there were five or six major ethnic groups and that just grew over the time that I was still living in the community. So I can understand that newcomers to an environment who you've never seen before or never met before can be somewhat frightening for some, disturbing for others, you know, and you know, and then there are those who really welcome them with open arms, the new arrivals. But what I do know also is 
that I live in a country where, you know, that has embraced multiculturalism. I live in a country that has succeeded because of it. And, uh, you know, it's like one Vietnamese community leader said to me once before in a meeting, he said that the difference of a, uh, you know, embracing a, a multicultural society, if you didn't embrace it, it would be like having a Greek salad without the olives. <laughs> right. That's so, right. So, you know, he says that um, he pointed in a, in a meeting, in a talk he gave, that everyone's contribution has really made up what the Australian society is. And it's extremely positive. So I, 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 want to, I just want to point to the wherever you, we are in the world, in whichever country, the arrival of new faces is going to be alarming. Sure. And no that is understandable. However, it is our responsibility, um, those of us who have travelled the world, those of us who are, are, are okay with people from different cultures and accepting and can understand how much value that they would contribute to our own lives um, from their perspective, then it's really our responsibility to help move that forward in my mind anyway. So I guess I've thought for a long part of my life that I'm, I've had the good fortune of inter international travel, living in different countries, working a, in business, working in NGO, working side by side or alongside governments, at different levels, so I'm responsible for helping to to move the dial forward and helping to embrace people from different cultures around the world, and it is doable. And we have live examples, and um, you know, and they're continuing to grow in numbers. Right, and it comes back again to what you mentioned right at the beginning, which is this whole question of responsibility. And you know, once once you understand that a multi ethnic society is okay, and preferably that it's actually better. Um, it is our responsibility um, and everyone's responsibility who knows that and understands it to spread that message and to really make it clear that, yes, it may seem daunting at first that people from other cultures, other religions, other backgrounds are coming to live in your community. But in fact, if you approach it in the right way and you welcome them and you assist them learning the language and you help them in the employment sector and, and so many other fronts, um, 99.99999% of the time, they're going to assimilate very quickly and very easily into your society, and you will have a wealthier, more prosperous, more peaceful society uh, as a result of it. And we need to continue to put that message out there, recognizing that the influx of large numbers of people is always going to be a challenge, but also to remember that when that happens in the world, it doesn't tend to generally happen in wealthy countries. It tends to happen in poor countries when there's an immediate refugee flow. I mean, Jordan, a million Syrians, and, and Lebanon, I don't know, 500,000 Syrians, and so many other countries in the world that tend to be middle-income or low-income, they're the ones that take the mass influx. Iran took 3 million uh, Afghans, you know? Um, yes, there's immigrants in all these other countries, but that tends to be highly regulated by comparison to particularly flight after a conflict or during a conflict. So let's remember that as well. Most of the burden of refugees rests not on the shoulders of the wealthy Western countries, but on the shoulders of middle-income and sometimes lower-income countries with the support of United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees and others. Um, but, you know, maybe, maybe that's a good place to end this whole question of responsibility Ultimately, it's all of our responsibility as responsible people, as responsible humans, responsible citizens to uh, not only 
spread the message of harmony and tolerance and understanding um, and love and kindness and generosity, um, but really stand up for those principles when they're under threat by um, forces which seek to turn back the clock, even though they will inevitably fail, because you can't really turn back evolution. And that's what the process in which we're all engaged as little bubbles floating down a stream. Um, we, we are all part of history. We are all part of the evolutionary process of our societies and, as, and of our culture. And clearly, we've made huge achievements over time. and We have many more to make. Um, but we are kind of beginning to run out of time in a certain respect. And so we really need to rejig things in a certain way and, um, and learn the lessons of history as quickly as we can and realize that uh, our shared society is one where we all are treated as equals uh, among equals. So Peter Georgievsky of the Global Dialogue Foundation, thank you very much for joining us today. Any final words before we sign off? Yeah, thanks again, Scott, for uh, inviting me to speak with you on your podcast. Um, I, uh, you know, just in closing, I would like to um, just send a note of thanks to every effort that is being made out in the world to move things forward. And as grim as it may seem with everything that's going on, um, I, uh, I think that we can each acknowledge our own efforts towards um, making the world a better place and we can see our achievements as well as our failures uh, to do that um, positively. And it's okay that every effort towards making the world a better place in your own sphere of influence um, even though it may be frowned upon, even though it may be met with resistance, even though it may be met with aggression, that it's okay. Because if you look out in the eyes of your children or others' children, you will see that every effort that we all make towards making the world a better place for them is going to be you know, met with glee and excitement. And we do have awesome power and awesome capacity to build a united um, global um, world in peace and harmony, coexisting, exploring together on how we can, you know, um, make so much more out of our lives here. So I just wanted to point to that and acknowledge all of those efforts um, and thank you as well for your time. And I also wanted to invite any organizations or individuals who would like to be part of the Global Dialogue Foundation's um, uh, vision and mission uh, to reach out. And, um, you know, we're, we're very welcoming of people who are, you know, moving forward in the, in the same or similar direction. So. Mm -hmm. And one last time, your website, so they so can find you? GlobalDialogueFoundation.org. Great. Well, Peter, thank you very much. It's been really inspiring talking to you and look forward to talking again really soon. Thank you. Take care. Bye.